If you will, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Today we'll be looking at chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What looks like at first a completely new subject in chapter 10 is actually a continuation of chapter 9. Paul closed that chapter with an illustration of a race in which all the runners run but only one wins. The race is a picture of A Christian's life, a life that is focused on knowing what it takes to run well, and so does what it takes to run well, exercising self-control in all things while engaged in that struggle. Paul ends the illustration in verses 26 and 27 of that chapter, so I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Last week, we noted the tension that we see here from Paul saying he could be disqualified if he runs aimlessly. I don't think this text and others like it are meant to be just immediately dismissed by saying that disqualification only refers to the loss of a believer's rewards. Hang in there. If we think of it only in that way, we miss much of what the warning and other passages that are warnings are trying to convey. Paul obviously believed and wrote, especially in places like Romans 8, 28-30, that those whom God brings to himself through Christ are not under condemnation and do belong to him forever. And he also wrote that what God began in a believer, he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.8. It's evident that warnings and exhortations to persevere to the end are also common in the New Testament. They're everywhere. And at the same time, we see promises that God will preserve, that God will preserve preserve his people until that final day. So, instead of writing verses off like this one, we need to understand that these warnings And admonitions are one of the fundamental means used to preserve Christians in the faith. As we respond to warnings, our assurance is not threatened. It's actually deepened. Why? Because if we truly belong to Christ, we will heed the warnings. As His Holy Spirit works through them to make us willing to work for God's good pleasure. You know that verse in Philippians 2 that 
everybody bounces around on. As Paul applied this truth to himself, it stimulated him to continue in the faith. And his perseverance strengthened his confidence that he would receive final salvation, which he was sure of. In fact, as we'll see more and more, perseverance is really the mark of a true believer. Persevering in the faith is really the mark of a true believer. And God knows we need this tension between persevering and being preserved in order to grow in trusting and depending on him. On the, on the one hand, it keeps us from being overconfident in ourselves, thinking our salvation security gives us a free pass to live our lives any way we want. And on the other hand, it keeps us from thinking that we can work our way into heaven in our own strength. So this tension does not imply that someone who is genuinely saved can ever lose their salvation. That is not what is implied, because that can't happen. Instead, the emphasis should be on the fact that those who do not persevere reveal something. It reveals that they were not a genuine believer to begin with. Now, in chapter 10, Paul illustrates and explains how this Corinthian church is in danger because they're already repeating the same sins the people of Israel were known for in the Old Testament, especially in the Exodus. The Corinthians are overconfident in themselves, especially in what they think they know. And their behavior reveals quite a disconnect with claiming to be followers of Christ. So one big question here is, will they see how they are drifting away from God? And will they really hear Paul's warning? Well, let me read this passage. And as I do, if you'd please stand, if you're able, be reading 1 Corinthians 10, the first 13 verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction 
on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation... But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe seated. Quite a letter. Despite God's providence and provision, the Israelites still responded in a way that displeased God. That's an attempt at a summary. Paul begins his history lesson by reminding the Corinthians that all the privileges of God bestowed upon his people, of all them all, it's especially important here to see the parallel connection between God's provisions to Israel and their history and God's provisions to the Corinthians in their history. They're parallel. The lessons Israel never quite learned as they were delivered from slavery in Egypt and then traveled through the wilderness for 40 years toward the promised land are the same lessons Paul knows the Corinthians need to learn. Do you see what's implied? They're the same basic lessons that the church today needs to learn. Even though the Corinthian church was mainly Gentiles, Paul still says their spiritual ancestors were the Israelites. Did you notice that? In verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... And in verse 1, the last part, Israel had God's presence and protection. They were all under the cloud. They were saved out of Egypt. They all passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses in verse 2, which means basically that they were incorporated into or identified with Moses, the leader of God's people, as they were taken through the sea by God's presence in that cloud. And in verses 3 and 4, in a sense, they had a meal like the Lord's Supper in the wilderness in eating God's provision of manna and also drinking the water from the rock who's identified as a type of Christ here. In Exodus 17, 6, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And all ate the same spiritual food, we read, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. A lot going on here. But don't miss the big point. And even with all these privileges of God's presence, his protection, we read in verse 5, one of the saddest verses ever, nevertheless, 
with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Overthrown can be rendered or translated as laid low, struck down, overthrown, or even scattered. This history lesson has just become a shocking reminder to the Corinthians as they saw this letter. A shocking reminder of one of the saddest episodes in Israel's history. Paul wants the Corinthians to reflect on boundless goodness and mercy, God's boundless goodness and mercy towards his idolatrous and rebellious people during the Exodus and the wilderness journey. These people distrusted God in spite of his wonderful daily care. They longed to go back to Egypt and still served idols while they were on their way out, which they made and carried with them. We read that in Amos 5 and Acts 7 report. They griped constantly. They were never satisfied. Many rebelled over and over against Moses. No wonder God was not pleased with them. And when Paul says God wasn't pleased with most of them, that's a nicer way of saying all but two of the 20-year-old men plus over 20 who were originally delivered from Egypt died in the desert and never entered the promised land. Let that sink in for a second. Since there are so many engineers in this congregation, I will continue with some figures. Only Joshua and Caleb made the whole journey and entered into the promised land. Of the original people that were 20 years older, 20 years older, older. And here in verse 5, in graphic terms, Paul writes that these people, their bodies were scattered or overthrown all over the desert. Let's go on. This picture needs to be so ingrained we cannot forget it. The total number of men who were 20 years old or older, we learn in Numbers 1, were 603,550. The total number of men. Assuming that there were an equal number of women, about, that makes a total of how many people? 1,207,100. Five, over five times more people than live in this whole Amarillo area. Walking. Now, if you divide that by 38 years, that's the time spent in the desert after God pronounced judgment on them in Numbers 14. That calculation comes out to an average of about 90 deaths per day for those 38 years. And that's a grim and daily reminder 
of God's judgment upon never-ending idolatry and distrust and rebellion. Now these things took place, we read, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And that refers to all that Paul has already mentioned, God's benefits, Israel's sin, and God's judgment. Those are the examples for us. And put all together, the picture Paul is drawing for the Corinthians in himself and us in verses 6 through 10 shows what kind of judgment comes upon those who live lives marked by or dominated by desiring evil, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, and grumbling. God's judgments upon Israel in their 40 years of wilderness travail happened then to keep the people of Israel from setting their hearts upon evil things, especially the idolatrous rites of paganism. And this example is meant to remind the Corinthians now of the same danger for them. Because some in the Corinthian church were already doing the same sorts of things. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. Everybody know that picture? Moses took too long up on the mountain getting the law from God. People got impatient. They went to Aaron and said, make us gods that we can worship on our way because they didn't think Moses was coming back what appeared what was built what was used a golden calf they couldn't wait any longer so they made a golden calf to worship how quick we are to substitute anything and everything to worship when we think God has tarried longer than our schedule will allow Next, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a big in a single day. This is, counts in Numbers 25 and 31, and it's not fun to read. This alludes to an event when Israelite men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women and were soon engaging in the worship of Baal, and God judged them severely with a plague. Next, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. In Numbers 21, the overconfident Israelites who had just won a battle became impatient because they were going to have to take a detour and spoke against God and Moses saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water And we loathe this worthless food. Worthless food was what? The manna that God provided from heaven every single morning. Except on one day. The word test here, test that they put Christ to the test, indicates that they were testing the Lord to see what he would do. Or to see, this is a good one, really it's saying to see how far they could go. Because they'd seen him 
act to discipline them before. Last, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Because grumbling was something the Israelites constantly did throughout their journey. It's hard to pinpoint exactly which incident this is referring to. It's probably putting them all in the same basket. But the Jewish teaching of that day looked at Korah's rebellion as being the main one. And number 16, the most serious, especially since Korah's men were destroyed and a plague unleashed. The ground opened up and swallowed literally the rebellious people who were in this rebellion. The point should be clear to the Corinthians. Grumbling about God risks calling down divine judgment. You know, there's not too many people that even have that thought anymore. Do we put God to the test? Yeah, all the time. I'll get away with this. It's covered. God never changes. It's not that he's not displeased. But it's here. Paul wrote it to a New Testament church. We need to pay attention. In verse 11, Paul reiterates the reason why these events are recorded in redemptive history. So he started off saying this, and then he gives the examples from the Old Testament, and then he says it again. Anybody that teaches knows that there's a method to this. We must be careful when we read this not to just simplistically affirm that living the Christian life means merely avoiding the bad things people did in the past. And if you're on a reading through your Bible plan and you read those parts of the scripture, I know it's so easy to do that. We all do that. We get to those parts and we go, oh man, I don't like this. So I'm not going to really try to read this and apply it to my own heart. Instead, we should be grateful and obedient to God. Why? Because of what he's done, which is save us from our sins. And if that doesn't show to others, something is drastically wrong. And Jesus told parable after parable to self-righteous Pharisees about this, did he not? Judging other people. First and foremost, not that you don't need to call attention to sin and help people be accountable, but the attitude that I am so self-righteous that nobody else can measure up. And boy, does this apply there. So much. Grumbling. Being self-righteous, overconfident. When Paul says, on whom the end of the ages has come, he means the last days have been inaugurated in Christ, but they haven't been consummated yet. We're in that period. Ever since Christ rose, these are the last days. It may get worse and the end, but we're in the time. He meant that. 
In other words, we should see from Israel's response to God in the wilderness how fatal it is to disbelieve and disobey God. And we need warnings like this. One of the reasons we need it is because as our culture gets more and more gross across the board, it's easy for Christians to try to hide and say, oh, look at that, and not realize that sinners need a Savior, and we needed a Savior, and these people need a Savior. And so it should motivate us in that particular way. Verse 12 is a much more specific warning. There we read, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul still has much more to say to those who proudly think that they have the freedom in Christ to do anything or go anywhere. We are only halfway through this letter. He's going to spell out some specific applications later, very soon here. Like, if someone says, eat this meat, here's what you're supposed to do. If someone says, this meat has been offered to idols, what should you do? He's going to actually get that specific. But here, Paul is actually drawing the people of Israel and the Corinthians together through these Old Testament lessons. Consider the Old Testament Israelites. They took much pride in their standing before God. They alone were God's people. They thought God would always be on their side and felt spiritually secure. Why? Because of the Mosaic Covenant. Yet the Old Testament reveals that because of their disobedience to God, untold numbers fell in the wilderness. The Corinthians were also proud of what they thought they knew. And as we saw in chapter 3, they relied on their own insights and the wisdom of others. Paul's already addressed them with this several times. And with those attitudes, what happened to their hearts? Their hearts were not right with God. They became self-confident and their confidence needed to be in God. And their spiritual security needed to come from true faith which relies on God to fulfill his promises. The word fall in verse 12 refers to the consequences in life which come from false security. If our security is primarily in anything or anyone else other than Jesus Christ, we too may suffer serious consequences. The obvious question is, is our security really in the Savior that we say we believe in? Being the apostolic shepherd that he is, Paul encourages his readers in verse 13. Probably one of the most famous, well-known, and most memorized verses in the Bible. I think it was the first verse I memorized right after I went off to college. That's called instant recognition that you're in trouble. There's nobody around here. And there weren't cell phones and cameras on the doors and recording devices. And some of you are old enough to remember that. Now nobody cares. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But it's nobody else knows how I feel. Nobody else felt that way. Nobody else went through what I went through. It's a lie. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But I just couldn't help it. The devil made me do it. They dragged me, blah, blah, blah. But will with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is fascinating. Let's tear it apart. Temptation basically means a test to test or to prove. And it actually has no negative connotation by itself. It means to test or to prove. Whether it becomes proof of righteousness or an inducement to evil depends on our response. If we resist it in God's power, what is it? It's a test that proves our faithfulness. If we do not resist, it becomes a solicitation to sin. The Bible uses the term both ways. And most agree in this passage, Paul has both meanings in mind here. The temptations that come to Christians are those all human beings face. All human beings face. They are unavoidable. Every difficult circumstance in life can be a test to prove and grow your faith. Or a temptation to either strengthen you if you obey God and remain confident in His care. Or it can become a solicitation to evil if you choose instead to doubt God and disobey His word. In other words, no temptation is stronger than the spiritual resources that God has given us in His Son. People sin because they want to sin more than they want to obey. Now, make it personal. I sin because I want to sin more than I want to obey. Jonathan Edwards said this the best when he said, at, at the moment that this is happening, at the moment that you decide to sin, you want to sin more than you want to obey, which is why you go ahead. It's why I go ahead. Decisions, this shouldn't sound pithy anymore. Decisions become easier when your will to please God outweighs your will to please yourself. How does that happen? Only if you love God more than you love yourself and what you want to do. And that only comes by recognizing that what God has done for you in his grace in Christ is so overwhelming. And you love him for what he's done. That you want to obey him. And we fail so often. And he draws us back. 
and he works on this our whole lives. And when that consummation comes and we're with him forever and ever, whew, that forever and ever is going to look really good because all the sin's going to be gone. And as we go through this process, we bear testimony to how God has been faithful to us even in all this. Temptations. James 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the way it works. The primary point is that God is always faithful to his people when they struggle with temptation. How? God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, beyond what you can bear. So instead of going through with what you want to do sinfully, what I want to do sinfully, we should start with this and preach it to ourselves. God will not let me be tempted beyond my ability. So your first thought is, wow, this is the strongest I've ever been tempted this way. But God has provided me what I need. You've got to start there. If you don't believe that, it's over before it starts. And he says, and with the temptation, God will also provide the way of escape. You notice that doesn't say a way of escape. The word escape refers to a mountain pass. In Greek military history, there were countless times when a smaller force trapped, was trapped and seemed doomed and then escaped through some mountain pass. It's all over the place, all the time. And that's kind of the picture, but the picture that we forget is that first and foremost, it's being engaged in a battle is the picture. And God provides the way of escape. It's the way through prayer and trust in the Lord and focus upon Christ. These are the primary provisions of God for the endurance of temptation. Please don't come away from this passage with the idea that there's some kind of magic ring you can put on your finger every time you're tempted that will remove you completely from temptation's presence. Yes, there, that is referable sort of to a movie about a ring that makes somebody invisible. Whether we have a test by God to prove our righteousness and grow or a test by Satan to induce us to sin, there is really no, only one way that we pass the test, and that's we escape the t temptation by not getting out of it, by passing through it. Sometimes God may save you from it by his grace because he knows that it's overwhelming. At that point, he knows how to work with us. God's own spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. True? It was the Father's will that the Son be there. And Jesus did not leave until all three temptations were faced. He met the temptations head on. 
And he escaped them by enduring them in his father's power. God intended to prove Jesus' righteousness and did not tempt Jesus or entice him in any way. But Satan was trying to entice or tempt Jesus to sin. Hope that helps. We always look to Christ for clarity on some of these. In other words, for every temptation, God prepares a way out that you may be able to endure it. The phrase endure it implies resisting temptation and passing through it. God sees us through it by making us able to endure it. We also know that Jesus understands what it is that we must endure. What? Hebrews 2.18 For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he didn't sin, but he was tempted and he suffered. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So what can we preach to ourselves when tempted? God provides what we need to overcome temptation. You realize in those times what every one of us do. That's the last thing we're thinking about. God provides what we need to overcome it. Because see, we're, we're still playing with it. We're still kind of like the Israelites, kind of pushing, see how far we can go. And he, secondly, he limits the temptation to what we can endure and provides the way of escape. That's a beautiful thought. You can apply that personally. In any temptation that I face, I know that God wouldn't have allowed it unless he provided what I needed to trust him through it. And then I still fall. Do you remember that for the next time? And the next time? And the next time? He limits the temptation to what we can endure and see he provides the way of escape. Prayer, trust, focus on Christ. And he's given us a Savior who knows our struggle. He's given us a Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we again are challenged by your word to realize how much we need you and how faithful you are. And we glory in you that the righteousness that lets us stand before you and will on the last day and for eternity is Christ's own righteousness, that we have nothing to provide in any way that gives us any merit. And that in itself humbles us to want to know you, the one who cared so much that you sent a Savior for a sinner such as I. And you provided what we need and you leave us in this life to spread the news of your grace and to learn of it in so many different ways as we struggle in so many things, but also as we enjoy so many of your tr tremendous blessings. Help us be instruments of your grace as we proclaim the gospel. And we ask that in Christ's precious name.
Amen. Um, we now have a very short, actually this will take less than five minutes. And I'm going to turn it over to Blake. Uh, this is f- for members to be able to vote if you're a regular attender. You